On Christmas Eve in the year 1906, a long time ago, a 33-year-old professor and former chemist for Thomas Edison named Reginald Fessenden did something long thought impossible. It's going all the way back to Christmas Eve 1906. Here's what Reginald Fessenden did. Using a new type of generator, he spoke into a microphone, and for the first time in history, a man's voice was broadcast over the airways. Can you imagine? I'm assuming none of us were there. If you were, I want to hear your story, right? Do the math on that. That's pretty cool. You're probably zero or one, maybe, but I'm guessing none of us were there in that reality. So, but we, so we all wonder, what were the first words ever spoken over the airways? Reginald Fessenden, Christmas Eve, 1906, read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, the birth story of Jesus Christ. Here's what they heard, 1906. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. Her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. First words ever broadcast over the radio was the reading of the birth of our Savior. Now imagine the reaction. For us, right, this is normal, okay? We turn on the radio, it's no big deal. But imagine the reaction of radio operators on ships at the time, wireless owners across the world when their normal coded impulses, right, they're so far from an audible voice, were interrupted by a human voice reading the Bible. You talk about the number of people that wonder if God is like coming down and speaking to them. Am I the only one hearing this? I mean, this is so dramatically different from anything they would have heard up until that point. But Fessenden wasn't done. He read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and after he finished reading, he picked up his violin, and he began to play the song, O Holy Night. O Holy Night, making it the first song ever sent through air via radio waves. First song ever. That event solidified the song's place in history as one of the most beloved, most recorded Christmas songs of all time. That was in 1906. Here's a few of those lyrics. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Pining means trapped, or sin traps us. Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Don't you love that line? The reality of the Savior coming, the soul. You've come for me. The soul felt its worth. I love the next line as well. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angels' voices. O oh, night divine. O oh, night when Christ was born. It was a holy night. Why? Not because that night specifically was important. It was because who was coming. What makes this night holy is the who that has come. So Luke 2, you're probably familiar with, you, know, you read with your, uh, your, your family on Christmas Day. That's central to the birth story, probably the most popular scripture reading at Christmas time. But what was the glimpse 
given to Mary of anything holy to come. Right? There's more that leads up to that story. It's what I want to look at today. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Naturally, as any of us would respond, an angel coming to us, verse 29, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting that might be. That's a big deal. Angel coming to say, hey, what's up? Verse 30, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. That's good news. Goes on, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Can you imagine being Mary, receiving this news, like, say what? It's a teenage girl living her life. Mary said to the angel, naturally, Verse 34, she's thinking practically, okay, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, don't miss this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. <laughs> what an amazing reality. That's, this is why we gather, this isn't a Christmas thing, this is why we gather every single week. Jesus' holiness is derived from his being conceived by the Holy Spirit. There has never been and there will never be again someone who enters the world in this way. This is as big a deal as it gets. Verse 36, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age. This is what I love, right? The angel's like, doesn't stop there. You think that's crazy. Here's something else that's just as crazy, maybe even crazier. Right? I just want to paint this picture for Mary. Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing, here it is, for nothing will be impossible with God. This is a beautiful reality. This is an angel speaking into Mary's life. And Mary responded, verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So here's a normal teenage girl living her life, right? She doesn't have any resume that's going to make her credible to anybody else except for God. But God comes and says, uh, you're, you're favored, right? And she, he knows that she's favored because he knows that she's eventually going to respond like she does. And so this unbelievable reality that, that Mary's hearing from God, right? This wasn't like a lead up. This is, she's getting all this information at one time and hearing for nothing will be impossible with God. Okay. If you say so, because I don't really see how this is playing out. So this is a very interesting story when we think about, oh, holy night, holy to be set apart, right? There was only one who was true, truly holy. It's God, and it's God coming to us. The holy one is also a personal God coming all the way to us. And so when we sing, oh, holy night, it's holy not because of the where or the what, but the who. Oh, holy night. First song played over the airwaves. That's significant. And so naturally, we would think, wow, if God is, is great, then he's going to have a great story. We would think, oh, holy night, would have a very spiritually profound origin story regarding the lyrics and the composition. And here's where this story gets crazy. The fact that we're still singing this today. See, the fact that oh, holy night is as popular and impactful as it is today points to the God of the impossible. 
the God who more specifically redeems it all. And this is where it will get personal. Here's a story. In 1847, 1847, doing the math, 1906, right? So 50 years prior, 60 years prior, 1847, a priest in a small town in France, a priest in a small town in France, went to his French poet friend, Placide Capot, and asked him to write a song, a poem or a song for Christmas Eve Mass. So in 1847, in a horse-drawn carriage on his way to Paris, Placide Capot composed the poem that we now know as Holy Night. He put those words together. Now you need to know that he's a, he was a passive churchgoer. Right? He was much more into writing poetry than going to church. And so he's the one that composes these words. But now he needs a melody to go with it. He had the words but didn't have a melody, so he approached his Jewish friend, Adolf Adams, who was a popular composer at the time. <laughs> okay, so here you, got, here you got a guy that barely cares about Jesus, taking it to his Jewish friend who doesn't even believe in Jesus the Messiah, saying, hey, you got a melody for me? He asked him to write a melody, and so in 1847, at Christmas Eve Mass, this is interesting, three weeks after he finished the melody... This little church in France, for the very first time, sings this great epic hymn, O Holy Night. Shortly thereafter, right, you're like, oh, man, that's, you're like, that's kind of a bummer. I thought, I thought, too, that there'd be more of a spiritually-minded origin, right? God was up to something. We're still singing this great song. Well, here's what happens next. Shortly thereafter, Capote decided he was going to leave the church altogether, join the socialist movement in France, and that's what he did. So at that point, right, the church obviously in, in, in France knew what was happening there, and the, the person who wrote the lyrics to O Holy Night, like, uh-oh, do we keep singing it? <laughs> so there was some tension going on. They're like, what are we going to do with this great hymn that this now apostate man has written? So they outlawed the hymn. 1847, this song should have faded away then. They refused to let it be sung in their liturgy. And so that song at that point probably should have faded into oblivion, but it didn't. And so for the next decade, right, small French towns, common folk, they would kind of keep it alive and sing it, but it was banned to be sung, right, in this kind of setting, in liturgical form, for an entire decade until 1857. And this is where it gets really interesting. 1857, 10 years after the composition of O Holy Night, a man by the name of John Sullivan Dwight got a hold of this song. Who was John Sullivan Dwight? He was an abolitionist in America, specifically the northern part of America. He finds out about this song, and he heard this line in that hymn. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. So it was translated right, from French to English because John Sullivan Dwight, at that point in time, looked at the southern United States and said, that's not right. <laughs> and he did something about it. That's unbelievable. So he revived it. He grabbed onto this hymn. A church, especially in the northern part of the United States at the time, started to sing this hymn once, once again in America for the first time. And their declaration was this, if Jesus has come... And he's freed humanity, who are we to keep people enslaved? If Jesus come for the world, if he's meant to be a gift to the world, for unto this world a child is born, the hymn was then used to slowly but surely break down the chains of slavery in our country. 
And unfortunately, how desperately we still need it today. But those, those few lines are what resonated deeply with him to want to do something about it. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, a prophecy is told about a Savior who will one day come. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government, verse 7. In peace, there will be no end. There will be no end. That's 1857. Then nearly 50 years later, 1906, is the first song played over radio airwaves. Kept alive by a man who had a vision that peace is supposed to be for everyone. Freedom is for all because God said so. He sent the one all the way to every single one of us to enter our broken, imperfect lives and say, you can have peace, you can have hope. I've come to solve your sin problem. Nobody is exempt. And one of the final lines of A Holy Night, sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. With all our hearts, we praise his holy name. And so when we sing the song, and we're going to sing it here in just a few minutes, right? We sing it not just for the, the fact that we've received this gift, but for the fact that this gift is for everyone. We expand our vision knowing we still have a lot of work to do, bringing reconciliation to this world, but we have the one who came to solve that peace problem. We are the ones who are supposed to be reflecting it rightly. So what can we learn from a Christmas song like this? One that's written and composed by people who didn't really care much about Jesus. Kind of crazy, the origin. But this song has had more staying power over the years than most other Christmas songs. So what can we learn? Here's the reality, and this is where it gets personal. The truth that we find in the story, right, the journey of the song still being so central, so prominent to our gatherings around Christmas today is the truth that God redeems it all. We have a God who redeems it all. He came into this world for you. And what that means is he's come for your redemption. He's come for your entire life. God's son is the light that shines throughout history, transcends all of man's feeble efforts, right? We can write songs, we can, we, can, we can perform great acts, but God is the one who sustains and redeems. Even what doesn't come from a place of honor to God, right, the origin of the song, moves through centuries to proclaim the goodness and eternal love of God. That's why it deeply resonates with us when we sing. We, we understand the authorship might have been guys that didn't quite get it, but God ordained it. He redeemed it. He sustained it, and it resonates with us. See, God is still telling the greatest of stories. And you and I are part of that great redemption story that is meant to reflect his holiness. We ask, what is my purpose? What's the point of my life? It's not to live your best life now. It's to live a life worthy in honor of God's goodness and glory. We live to reflect that peace and freedom and hope is for everyone. See, the God of the impossible, Mary knew this. She recognized it in that very moment. The God of the impossible brought the Savior of the world into the world through a virgin. That's an only God moment. The God of the impossible has us singing a song that was born out of minds who weren't followers of Jesus. <laughs> Only God does that. The God of the impossible used a song that contributed to the end of slavery. It's interesting, in 1871, another uh, amazing, like, wow, is that actually true? In 1871, the French were fighting the Germans, and it was on Christmas Eve. One of the Frenchmen got up out of the trenches, unarmed, and started singing, Oh, Holy Night. <laughs> 
the Germans, one of the Germans started singing back a hymn from Martin Luther. And for the next 24 hours, they ceased all fighting in the name of freedom on Christmas Day. (laughs) God does crazy stuff, right? In the midst, right, of chaos, of war, of hate. Something so simple as a song can bring peace. Why? It's more than a song. They're proclaiming God's goodness for all. The God of the impossible is a personal God. He didn't didn't live and stay above the fray, right, and try to solve the problem of sin in such a way that he would not have to sacrifice what was most precious to him. He sent what was most precious to him for you. He came all the way to us because he's a personal God. And Jesus lived a perfect life all the way to the cross and went and made that decision willingly thinking of you because he loved you that much. So he cares about what you're going through. He cares about what you've gone through. So we think about what a God who redeems it all. Some of you, based on your, what you've gone through and what you're going through, you're ready. You're ready and willing to believe in a God who redeems it all. You just wonder how it's all going to turn out. And so I believe that many of you are here today. I have no idea how many because you need to hold on to that promise, hold on to that hope, even though you have no idea, you have no evidence of believing that that's actually true. But we have a God who redeems it all. We have a God who will redeem your brokenness. Some of you are broken right now. God will redeem it. God will redeem your divorce. Some of you, unfortunately, this is your first Christmas being divorced. God will redeem that. God will redeem the loss of your child. Many of you, unfortunately, have experienced the worst loss possible. And you'll, you have no idea how you can move on from that. It doesn't feel like God redeems it all, but he promises to. God will redeem your abuse. Some of you have a history that you have been trying to forget most of your life. And God wants to redeem that. God will redeem your shame. You're questioning your own value. But God's saying, I want to redeem that. Here's why. There may always be hurt. And for many of these circumstances, there will definitely always be hurt. But we have a God who says, your hurt does not define you. Your hurt and your pain does not define you. Whatever has happened before today, in your past, in your history, that does not define you. It is not, it is not your identity, no matter what people have spoken into your life. Your circumstances, your past, does not shape the fullness of who God says that you are today. Your hurt also is not the end of your story. These are tragic examples that I just gave. And some of you, you believe that this is the end. This is the final chapter. And you're trying your hardest to suppress, to to forget, so that you can move on. God says, I want to redeem it all. He says, I'm going to use your your tragic, maybe dark, broken past that you maybe had no control over. It's something that happened to you. He said, I'm going to use it. I'm going to redeem it all to bring wholeness to your story for you, but even beyond you. So my prayer for you today, and this hits everybody in a different way, my prayer for you is that your hurt becomes desperate hope, that your hurt becomes a desperate hope, where you cry out to God, right, you throw up your hands in the air because you're done trying to forget it, suppress it, to figure it out, and that God begins to show you how he is carrying you to even greater purpose. He doesn't want you to bury it. He wants to redeem it all. All of your life counts. It matters. Because God is the great redeemer being the Holy One. We have to cling to the only one who is holy. He takes what isn't even meant for him or done in his name and uses it to shine light on hope for all. 
So your life counts. You need to know that today. Your life counts. All of your life counts. You don't have a God who compartmentalizes, saying, okay, you did a good job there. You did a bad job there. I'm glad I sent my son for the good part that you did. Kind of a bummer because that was kind of a waste of time. No, he sends, he sends it for your whole life. He says, I'm coming for you. I know all of your brokenness, all of your hurt, and I'm coming for you. He's the great redeemer. He's the holy one. You have a redemption story. Every corner of your life can be used by God. Every corner of your life can be used by God for his good, for your good and his glory. Whether or not we believe in the God of the impossible is determined by whether or not we respond as Mary did. So we circle back around that beautiful reflection, response that Mary had upon hearing something that she probably couldn't even wrap her mind around. But she was able, it seems like a short span of time, get to the point of being able to say this. Her response and our response to his holiness should be what she said. Luke 1, 37, 38. For nothing will be impossible with God. I mean, if, even if you're a first-time guest, right, you're skeptical, like, I don't know if I believe. I don't want you to believe unless you're signed up for impossible God. Right? This isn't an add-on to your life. This isn't like a self-help book. Like, oh, that, I think I'm going to be into Christianity. It, 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 it makes the most sense. It's the most encouraging. It just makes me feel good. Don't do it. Don't be interested. Only enter into a relationship with Christ if you're entering into a relationship with the impossible God. The God who does the impossible. What your circumstances are, you can't imagine God flipping the script in your life and using you in profound ways. Sign up for what you can't actually believe tangibly. Because he's in the business of working in such a way that we can't plan for, we can't expect for. But it it, it begins by us submitting and surrendering just like Mary did. And she said, for nothing will be impossible with God. If he says all this impractical stuff is going to happen to me, okay, I believe in that kind of God. I'm walking with him. Can't explain it. Verse 38, Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. That's the identity she claimed. That's the identity of all of us. We're not supposed to live our best life now and become the best version of ourselves. I'm with God. I'm wholly available to God alone to be used however he wants to use me. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Hope-filled surrender. So maybe you don't have hope today. Start with the surrender part. <laughs> Just throw your hands up in the air. Say, I don't have all the answers. I don't have it all figured out, but I've got to get beyond myself and believe in an impossible God. And I don't know how it's going to play out. I don't even know the timeline. Unfortunately, God takes longer than we think that he should sometimes. But some of you might need to begin with surrender, enter into desperate hope, and then let God do the work that he wants to do in your life. At both campuses, we're going to sit in a time of reflection and, and hearing the song, Oh Holy Night, that's familiar. And I hope that familiarity doesn't get in the way of us just appreciating the richness of what God did through the song. Man-made lyrics, as all songs are. But God said, I'm going to redeem the circumstances, the origin of this song. It's going to permeate through now centuries and be such a rich, central part to what we ultimately celebrate, a holy God. They came on a beautiful night that changed the trajectory of all of our lives. That kind of pursuit, that kind of love is for every single one of us. And so I hope that all of us at both camps will use this time to just kind of self-examination, right? Before we enter into a whole other decade, 2020, how am I living my life? I don't want to live any longer on my own. So if you want to enter into a relationship with Christ, write that on the connection card. We want to have that conversation with you. There's no more important decision to consider in your life. If you want to seek somebody out in prayer, we have uh, prayer rooms at both campuses. You can seek them out. Uh, the rest of the service or even afterwards, 
so we can spend that time walking well with you. Because we're all in this together. We get to celebrate our Savior, all of us, as a, a church family. Let's pray. God, in these moments, as we uh, just stop, in the midst of maybe the frenzy, the chaos, I pray that we can just sit and seek you and allow you to reveal to us how you are already redeeming our story. So some people, maybe several people today, need a glimpse of hope. Out of their desperation, Father, I pray that you will send them the right word, the right moment, the right relationship, the right conversation, and they can know that all of their life counts for something. There's no reset. There's no start over. There's only you entering our circumstances in our lives and saying, I'm going to redeem this. I'm going to use this. God, we thank you for all of our stories. I pray that they all belong to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.